Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Jeff Young. The dream of hydrogen fuels to replace gasoline gets deferred. Jules Verne, actually, thought that we would have hydrogen cars and horses on the road together. We are not at that point now, and we're not likely to get to that point anytime soon. The U.S. Energy Department slows down the hydrogen highway. Also, finding work is a struggle if you're a middle-aged Mexican woman, but Las Chicas Bravas didn't complain. They organized. Everybody said the women's cooperative would never make it. We had no money and no contact, so we would never find a building in which to put a business. Tough girls find success doing a tough job recycling. And a new way to fight invasive species. Rockabilly reminders for the rod and reel set. Those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Jeff Young in Washington, where the Obama administration's energy agenda is running into stiff resistance. For the first time, Senate Republicans got enough votes to block one of the president's nominees, David Hayes, Mr. Obama's choice to become deputy secretary of the Interior Department. The Republicans say it's nothing personal about Mr. Hayes, who held the same position under President Clinton. It's really about oil and gas. Utah Senator Robert Bennett is upset because the Interior Department revoked drilling leases near two national parks in Utah. And Alaska Senator Lisa Murkowski questions if the administration is allowing enough offshore drilling. Are we making a commitment to increase domestic production in this country as I believe that we should? And as the president himself has stated, he said... Oil and gas needs to be part of the equation, but they need to translate those words into action. Senate leaders from both parties expect Mr. Hayes will eventually be confirmed for the number two spot at Interior, but other nomination battles are still brewing, including the top air quality slot at EPA and two senior officials at the Energy Department. But, Jeff, while the Republicans are fighting on the energy front, they must have liked the administration's recent ruling about polar bears and wolves. Well, I imagine so. But some environmental groups do not like those decisions on endangered species. Interior Department Secretary Ken Salazar is sticking with a Bush-era decision that limits protections for the polar bear. The bear is threatened by melting Arctic ice from climate change, but Secretary Salazar chose not to use the Endangered Species Act to try to limit greenhouse gas emissions. Environmental activists are also taking Secretary Salazar to court for sticking with the Bush plan to remove the gray wolf in the northern Rockies from the endangered species list. I spoke with Vermont Law School professor Pat Parento, who's an expert on the act. I think Secretary Salazar represents a new kind of Western voice. For example, oil and gas leasing on public lands, he's been very critical of that program. But when it comes to endangered species, and particularly the management of these large predators like the wolf, I think what we're seeing is a very old-style Western politician at work, someone who can't divorce himself, really, from the community uh, he grew up in, a ranching community, and who is very sympathetic with people in the West who've made their living on the land, and for right or wrong, who see 
the intrusion of the federal government into the way they manage their lands as uh, as something that they want to minimize. So Salazar is straddling a bit uh, on some of these Western issues, and it's it's will be interesting to see how he manages these very conflicted policies uh, that he has to be responsible for uh, within the Department of Interior. So that's the wolf issue, taking the gray wolf off the, the endangered species list. The other big one here is really has more to do with the elephant in the room than it does really with the polar bear. And the elephant in the room here is climate change and uh, how climate change is going to affect the habitat of animals like the polar bear. And that's a huge issue. It seems to me Secretary Salazar kind of punted on that, didn't he? I think he did. There were other options open to the secretary. Uh, He could have crafted a different kind of rule that didn't rule out the possibility of considering the effects of greenhouse gas emissions on the polar bears, but the Obama administration prefers a comprehensive bill uh, that's pending in the Congress right now to deal with climate change and really does not want to use uh, the Endangered Species Act to address that, that major problem. But the Endangered Species Act is designed to address all threats to the to species and particularly cumulative threats. If you think of the example of water withdrawals and affecting salmon in the Pacific Northwest, no single water withdrawal threatens the survival of the salmon. But we know now that the combination of all the water withdrawals, plus, of course, pollution and other things, are in fact driving the salmon to extinction. The polar bear is a very similar situation. No one power plant is causing the Arctic to melt. The combination of all power plants, though, most assuredly are causing the Arctic to melt. The only answer to that question is to limit the amount of carbon dioxide coming from power plants And the Endangered Species Act, although it's not the ideal tool to address that problem by any means, it is certainly a tool. Does this decision on the polar bear set precedent for how they're going to deal with other species where, you know, this issue of climate change and habitat is sure to come up again? Yes, I think it does set a precedent. The next species in line to be listed as a result of climate change, is a species called the pika, which is a small mammal, a rodent-like species that lives in very high elevation areas of the west, the Rocky Mountains, for example. And we're going to have face the same problem there. The science clearly suggests that the species should be listed. Fish and Wildlife Service seems to be moving in that direction. And you'll have a repeat, I think, of what we saw with the polar bear, which is they'll list the species and then will immediately issue uh, this rule. It's called a 4D rule, like they did for the polar bear. And it will say, for example, we're not going to take into account greenhouse gas emissions when we look at threats to the pika. Now, this seems to be uh, kind of an inconsistent argument that uh, here's the threat, climate change, and here's the plan for dealing with it. We're going to ignore climate change. If this goes to court, as it most surely will, well, you're a lawyer. What are the department's uh, chances of winning there? Well, there are cases pending now in federal court in the District of Columbia. And I think the courts may very well overturn this rule and send it back to Secretary Salazar. And it it may provide the secretary with a second opportunity to take a look at this situation. But yeah, I think there are strong legal arguments to challenge the explanation that the agency has offered for why the most prominent threat 
to the polar bear is being excluded from consideration in this special rule that they've adopted. Professor Pat Barinto specializes in endangered species and climate change issues at Vermont's law school. Thanks very much for your time. Uh, My pleasure. Thank you, Jeff. The Bush administration made a big commitment to the development of hydrogen fuel cell cars, but the Obama administration has now proposed slashing that budget by nearly 60%. Journalist Jim Montevalli wrote Forward Drive, The Race to Build Clean Cars. He also blogs for the New York Times. I asked him what's knocked hydrogen cars out of favor. Well, the electric car recharging networks are really getting started. There's a bunch of companies entering that arena and signing agreements with cities, towns, states, even whole countries to wire them up for electric cars. The infrastructure is king. Once you have recharging stations, you can have uh, electric cars. I, I think we're actually seeing that revolution happen. The hydrogen revolution, the joke is it's always 20 years away, and unfortunately it still is. Uh, the fuel cell was actually invented around 1850, And there's always been the potential of fueling automobiles with hydrogen. Jules Verne, he actually thought that we would have hydrogen cars and horses on the road together. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, we've always known that that hydrogen had, uh, you know, a lot of energy potential. But making it practical for a vehicle has been a daunting task. We've talked to some people at the National Hydrogen Association, and the California Hydrogen Business Association seems like they didn't see this coming. I don't think anybody saw this coming. It was really a surprise to a lot of people. The National Hydrogen Association, the U.S. Fuel Cell Council, they issued a joint statement. I think they were pretty shocked by it because they had just asked for something like $1.2 billion in the stimulus money. And Secretary Chu had just funded something like $43, $44 million in hydrogen projects. So it looked like he was on the team. And then abruptly, he was not. How are the hydrogen developers taking this news? I think they're really angry about it. They, they are trying to lash out. And uh, there was just a very high-profile resignation from the Department of Energy's Hydrogen Advisory Committee. J. Byron McCormick, who was the former executive director of General Motors Fuel Cell Program, just sent uh, Energy Secretary Stephen Chu an email critical of the agency's decision. He said he couldn't in good conscience remain on the committee. And I think the hydrogen advocates think if they can get together in a room with Chu, they might be able to persuade him to change his mind. Now, the hydrogen advocates, the National Hydrogen Association, and those folks say that Secretary Stephen Chu is, well, he's misinformed about fuel cell technology, that in fact it's well advanced and that it would not be wise for the U.S. to jump out of the race at this point. What are some of the accomplishments that are already on hydrogen's mantle place? Well, I think they've gotten the California Fuel Cell Partnership up and running, and they've made a whole lot of advancements. John Hansen of Toyota told me, and I think this is true, that hydrogen has made more advances over the last four or five years than battery cars have. The cars themselves have gotten very sophisticated, really, really fun to drive, and they use space really well. They've made the fuel cell very compact, so you have lots of storage space, and the cars are are probably better to drive than battery cars right now. Jim, just for folks who might be confused here, what's the difference between a battery car and a hydrogen car? They're both electric vehicles. Yes, they are indeed both electric, and the hydrogen car uses an electric motor to get around. So they're both electric, but the hydrogen car uses a fuel cell to convert hydrogen into electricity using a chemical process. So instead of the battery, you've got the, the fuel cell. 
And it has the possibility of more range because battery cars are still somewhat challenged as to range. When Arnold Schwarzenegger was running to become governor of California, he talked about having a statewide hydrogen highway by 2010. So I guess at this point we're looking to just another bridge to nowhere. Yes, they have built some hydrogen stations in California, but I think they ran into the budget realities. California has huge budget shortfalls, and I think Schwarzenegger probably has other priorities right now rather than building the hydrogen highway. They have appropriated some money recently to build a few more stations, but it's not the whole highway, and I don't think we're going to see that. Now, while we're getting out of the hydrogen business, there are other places that are moving forward with it. I mean, Norway is still moving on down that hydrogen highway. What is the risk to America about getting left in the dust on this technology? Hydrogen advocates are making the case that we should move forward in all fronts. They're not really bad-mouthing electric cars. They say we need to be ready for any form of technology that could possibly come to the front. And I think there's a point to be made with that. But the government does have to set priorities. And I would say that right now electric cars have come to the forefront, and that has pushed hydrogen back a little bit. Jim Matavalli writes for many blogs, including the New York Times, and is author of the book Forward Drive, The Race to Build Clean Cars. Thanks so much, Jim. Great to be on. Just ahead, finding the right hook for anglers with country music. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. And I'm Steve Kerwood. Some of Australia's most prominent climate scientists have written a letter to the country's coal industry with a simple message. Get out of the coal business. Professor David Caroli of Melbourne University helped write the open letter, and he's on the line. Uh, Professor Caroli, now I'm looking at your letter. You and your colleagues say coal-fired power stations are doomed. And not only that, you say that government investment in carbon capture and storage will likely waste time and money. Part of the story, I mean, what we're really saying is that Australia cannot meet its obligations in terms of reducing greenhouse gas emissions and avoiding or minimising dangerous climate change under the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change by continuing with coal-fired power stations. So what we were really trying to do is, first of all, alert the owners of the coal-fired power stations to their responsibility in terms of greenhouse gas emissions for adverse impacts in many different areas around the world. Secondly, we wanted to alert them to the urgency needed in terms of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. When the Rudd government came in uh, just before uh, the Bali meeting of the Kyoto negotiations, that was in December of 2007, there was quite a flourish that, uh, yes, Australia is going to take part now in the Kyoto uh, Protocol. It had been a holdout along with the United States. And uh, things had changed in terms of the Australian government's approach to climate change. What has the government said to you in response to this letter? Um, The government has said absolutely nothing to us in in response to the letter. And you're absolutely right. I mean, the Rudd government came in, uh, ratified the Kyoto Protocol, uh, then uh, sponsored a comprehensive review of climate change science, climate change impacts, the costs of climate change, and then they've introduced legislation in the Australian Parliament for what they're describing is a carbon pollution reduction scheme, an emissions trading scheme, 
However, legislation provides very, very substantial free permits to coal-fired power stations, and there is little incentive for the coal-fired power stations to reduce their emissions. Professor, what's been the public response to your letter? We've had a very positive response from uh, a number of groups, although there have also been a few people that have described our letter and the need for 90% emission reductions in Australia by 2050 as we're living in fairyland. In terms of your letter, you point out that more than 80% of Australia's electricity comes from coal-fired power plants. So getting to uh, the kind of reductions that you're talking about here is really going to turn the whole electricity industry upside down in your country. That is exactly the reason that we wrote the letter and sent the letter, because it is impossible to meet Australia's emission reduction targets without turning the energy production system in Australia completely upside down, and that needs to happen urgently. There are existing technologies available within Australia, including solar power, wind power, geothermal power and wave power. However, they are being under-resourced because of the ongoing pressure from the coal industry in Australia to continue to use coal as the major source of fuel. What are the odds of uh, Australia renegotiating its, uh, its energy trajectory? responding to what you want? Um, Well, I think that's already happening in the sense that Australia is already introducing legislation. And on the 4th of May, the Australian federal government revised the targets for its carbon pollution reduction scheme, increasing the reduction levels from a previous 15% maximum emission reduction in 2020 to now a 25% emission reduction by 2020 relative to 1990 levels. Had nothing to do with your letter? Well, we've had no communication from the federal government, so I would have to assume that it's purely coincidence, but uh, I don't really know. Of course, it needs to be borne in mind that Australia has about the highest per capita emissions of greenhouse gases in the world, and therefore in any sort of um, contract and converge approach or equitable allocation of emission reductions per capita around the world, Australian emission reductions need to be higher in a percentage way than almost any other country, except perhaps the United States and Canada. Professor, before you go, are we doomed? Is it too late to do anything, as some say? Uh, No, no, we are not doomed. We are committed to significant climate change. But the sooner we act, the less will be that climate change and the quicker we will be able to stabilise the climate system. The longer we wait, the worse will be the climate change that we will be impacting on ourselves and our children. And our children's children. Exactly. David Caroli is a professor at the University of Melbourne and one of the lead authors of the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Fourth Assessment Report, and also an author of a letter to the Australian coal industry telling them that uh, it's time to get out of the coal fire power plant business. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. Just ahead, the vanishing biodiversity of the apple. But first, this note on emerging science from Jesse Martin. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Even honeybees have to earn their keep as they flit from one meal to the next. Flowers provide them with nectar, and in exchange, the bees spread pollen from one plant to another. 
Now, new research shows that honeybees do even more to earn their lunch than previously thought. According to scientists from the University of Würzburg, honeybees act as plant bodyguards by scaring away caterpillars that would otherwise munch on the plant's leaves. Honeybees aren't actually dangerous to caterpillars, but wasps are. And the caterpillars, using fine hairs on their bodies to detect flying insects, can't tell the difference. So they keep away from areas with large honeybee populations. In fact, in lab experiments, the scientists found that when honeybees are around, caterpillars do 60 to 70 percent less damage to plant leaves. The researchers hope their discovery will soon be applied to sustainable farming practices. If crops and flowers are grown side by side in the same field, then honeybees attracted to the flowers will become crop protectors, allowing farmers to use fewer chemical pesticides. And that's an idea that's worth some buzz. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Jesse Martin. There's nothing more American than apple pie. But like a lot of Americans, apples have their roots in another country. For the apple, the old homeland is present-day Kazakhstan. The apple is just one of many important fruits and nuts that descend from ancestral versions still found in the mountain forests of Central Asia. But a recent report by the conservation group Fauna and Flora International shows most of Central Asia's fruit and nut forests are already gone. More than 300 species are threatened with extinction. Georgina Megan coordinates the group's Global Trees campaign. Ms. Megan, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you very much. Now, I have to confess, this is a part of the world where I am uh, profoundly ignorant. But we're talking largely about the, the stands here, aren't we? That's right. Um, Central Asia generally refers to the five stands, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, and Uzbekistan. Now, I don't have a lot of uh, knowledge of this area, but turns out I, I probably should be very grateful for some of the very early exports from that area, right? That's right. It's believed that many of the domesticated varieties of fruits and nuts such as apples, apricots, plums, pears, originated from these forests. In fact, recent uh, work by the University of Oxford, genetic analysis of one of the apple species in the area has shown that it is indeed the origin of almost all domestic apples that we use today. This is Malassierversii? Malassierversii. That's it. That's That's the mama apple, huh? Indeed, indeed. And uh, it's thought that it was probably transported out of the region long, long ago down the ancient Silk Road, the trading route between sort of North Asia and China and then going into, into the Mediterranean and into Europe. Is it true that the, the former capital of Kazakhstan gets its name from uh, being the, the home to apples? Yes, indeed. The uh, former capital of Kazakhstan was Almaty. And that means, in the local language, father of apples. So clearly apples have been very, very important to the country throughout history. What uh, is at stake if we lose the origin of the apple? I mean, we have apple trees. We're not going to lose them. But what's, what's at risk here? No, indeed. Well, at an international level, these wild trees have much wider genetic diversity than we have in the generally fairly genetically narrow domesticated varieties. And this can be very important for 
resistance to new pests or diseases that might emerge for these crops. And increasingly at the moment, in the face of the unknown changes in the global climate that we're facing and the challenges that those will undoubtedly bring, this huge genetic diversity could be very, very important for the security of these feuds into the future. So what are the threats? What's causing us to lose these forests? Well, about 90% has been lost in the last 50 years. And conversion of the forests into agricultural land is one of the main causes. But one of the main factors in the last recent decades has been the breakup of the Soviet Union, of which all these countries were once a part. And as a result of that, many of the organizations, the government agencies responsible for managing the forest, are now severely under-resourced, very overstretched to try and keep a handle on controlling these forests and the forest use. And at the same time, the people have been much more thrown back on their own devices, as much less central support for people's livelihoods. So they are much more reliant on the natural resources. So wood for all their cooking and heating and the people make hay from the grass that's growing under the trees. But in that process, the young trees get get damaged or, or cut as well. So what is the strategy for trying to protect the forests? I guess it also has to involve improving the lot of life for the people living there. Absolutely. Fauna and Flora International and the Global Trees Campaign has been working in Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan for a number of years. We've been supporting alternative income-generating schemes for villagers, such as beekeeping, poultry raising, making clothes, that kind of thing, so that they can get some income without putting extra pressure on the forest resources. You know, uh, the notion of the original apple, it just has taken hold of my mind. I can't, I can't let go of that thought. I can't help but thinking of some early metaphorical Eve taking a bite of this, this apple, and, and here we are talking about the great knowledge in it. it it's kind of, we're talking about the, the fruit of the tree of knowledge here, the DNA inside that fruit. Indeed, yes. And, and there is a belief that this may well have been the type of apple that Eve ate in the Garden of Eden in, uh, in biblical times. And the fact that it has survived all the way uh, through historical time and uh, is one of the types that we've found in our research to be now threatened with extinction, and it's included in, in our report. And if we were to lose it, wow, talk about being tossed out of the garden. Absolutely. Well, best of luck on the project. Georgina Megan is Program Coordinator for Fauna and Flora International's Global Trees Campaign. Thanks very much. It's a fascinating subject. Thank you very much. With summer coming, the fish are jumping, and wildlife experts hope fishermen will help out with a real big problem, the spread of aquatic invasive species. It just takes a few simple precautions to keep unwanted critters and diseases out, but getting the word out can be tough. So Brett Shaw came up with a new angle to get anglers' attention. Shaw's an environmental communications director at the University of Wisconsin, and he's a music lover. He persuaded some musicians to write some lines about protecting the waterways. Inspect my boat, remove all plants, mud and critters, drain my bilge. And my life wells and motors toss my bait That I don't want in the trash And when I roll back home I rinse my boat Or just let it dry naturally And these simple steps will keep Wisconsin waters pure and clean Everybody inspect, inspect my boat 
Remove all plants, mud, and critters. Drain my bilge. You know, I've got to say that's probably the first time I've heard the word bilge in a non-pirate song. So I really like that. <laughs> Tell me about this song. What's, what's the goal here? Well, the basic goal here is we are primarily targeting 35 to 55-year-old fishermen who are most likely to move their boats and trailers from lake to lake and body of water to body of water. So what we looked at was what different types of music do men, which, by the way, I am a 41-year-old fisherman myself, but what types of music are they listening to? So uh, what I teach is social marketing uh, type activities. So I knew from research that music, you know, can affect our memory, our attitudes, our uh, behaviors. Why not combine all these different contexts and uh, interests to spread the message about preventing the spread of aquatic invasive species? So you have one tune here that is about uh, stopping the spread of disease. It's called One Bait, One Lake. Right. The story behind that song, we were doing some message testing at the Madison Fishing Expo because we wanted to sort of pass some different advertising ideas by about how actual fishermen wanted to hear about these different messages. And so we were talking to this one fisherman at the expo, and we were um, chatting with him about viral hemorrhagic septicemia, a long word, VHS, and we do have some of it in the state. It affects their immune systems, and they actually bleed uh, internally. So he just stood there, and he said, you know what? I get it. It's a really simple. One bait, one lake. One bait, one lake. If you don't use them up, don't relocate. One bait, one lake, and we'll be okay. One bait, one lake. If you want to fish tomorrow like you're fishing today, use one bait and one lake. Keep the water safe. Now, you've got folk rock, you've got a rockabilly tune, you've got a pretty straightforward uh, rock pop kind of thing. But what about, you know, if I'm a fisherman and I like, I don't know, gangster rap or speed metal, have you considered (laughs) how are you going to reach out to me? Well, you know, one, we are looking at how to communicate more effectively with younger adults. And so this was just sort of an experimental a project. So if we get demand for different genres of music, certainly we'll pursue those. As far as gangster rap, I don't know that's our demographic here in northern Wisconsin, um, but <laughs> so it's no, a good no, idea. No, no DJ Zebco spinning the reels or anything like that for now. Now, this is a lighthearted way to approach this, and obviously we've been having some fun with it. But underneath all this, this is serious stuff we're talking about. I mean, the threat that you guys face from these uh, invasives and diseases, this is serious business. Yes, it is. I mean... I don't think people always understand I me. Mean, they'll hear about aquatic invasive species or VHS and then go, so what? Why does that matter to me? And what's important about that is if invasive species enter our lakes, one is once they're there, it's really hard to uh, move things back to the way uh, that they were. And what they do, just like weeds, is they'll crowd out the natural habitat, you know, that the fish and the birds and the frogs need to live the, the, uh, the way they've been living for uh, millennia. So we want to preserve our lakes here in Wisconsin for generations to come. So it's fairly early in their infection of the lakes, but this is exactly the time that you want to prevent their further spread. 
And I should mention, too, this is part of a larger national campaign called Stop Aquatic Hitchhikers, in which you know, we're also encouraging fishermen to put stickers on their boat hitch, for example, or on their trailer that just sort of uh, reminds them to clean their boats, empty their bilge, uh, that kind of thing. So we're doing lots of different things. These songs are just one piece of a much larger puzzle, but it's a new way to kind of get the message out. Well, Brett Shaw is an environmental communications director at the University of Wisconsin, and he's a man who's bringing fish scales and musical scales together. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Clean boats, clean waters for the future on lakes. Clean boats, clean waters, a few steps is all it takes to keep our waters clean. Clean your boat every day. You take it out of fishing when you take it out to play. Talking aquatic invasive species. Prevention. Just ahead, the tale of some tough girls down Mexico Way. Stay with us on Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. And I'm Steve Kerwood. As you've no doubt heard, if you have an old TV and it's not hooked up to cable or satellite, you'll soon have no signal. American television is going digital, and you only have until June to buy a new TV or a converter box. But what about all those old TVs? In more and more places, it's not legal to dump them in a landfill. But as Living on Earth's Ingrid Lobet discovered, some of them go south of the border to a group of very determined and environmentally responsible women. An 18-wheeler backs into the loading bay of a concrete building 45 minutes south of the Arizona border. The driver jumps down, hammer in hand, to break the plastic lock Mexican Customs put on the truck a few miles back. The lock showed no contraband brought in from the United States. Inside the back of the trailer, old TVs and computers are stacked floor to ceiling. Even though the electronics are at the end of their life, Mexican Customs wants to know where each unit was manufactured. We brought in 37 pallets of monitors, 71 monitors from China, 160 from Japan, 5 from Hong Kong, and 1 from Finland. Net weight, 11 tons. That's Mariano Huchim with RetroWorks Mexico, a small electronics recycling startup. And from the loading dock, those 11 tons of TVs and computers swiftly make their way here to this workbench, where on any given day, four to eight women stand taking them apart. We're super happy with this work. Maria Dolores Cota, or Doña Loli, as her co-workers call her, says she's very grateful to have this job because she went a long time without one. We got the opportunity to work, and we're older. We didn't have the slightest hope. In Mexico, there was no hope for us to work. Lydia Barreda takes apart a TV next to her and chimes in. It's really true because here in Mexico there's a lot of discrimination against people who are older. After the age of 35, 
It's hard to get a job. It is not like in the United States where other people keep on working. There have been few jobs here in the town of Fronteras ever since a Levalor blinds factory closed. So, about three years ago, a group of women in their 50s decided to organize. They invited a local rancher who speaks English, Alice Valenzuela, to join them and asked for her help. Soon after, Alice ran into a business owner from Vermont. He runs an electronics recycling company and was looking to expand. She tried to persuade him to do it in Fronteras. Some in town were skeptical. Everybody said the women's cooperative would never make it. We had no money and no contacts, so we would never find a building in which to put a business. We would never find an investor who would want to come to a town with dirt streets and no infrastructure. But the Vermont recycler RetroWorks did partner with them, and local officials lent them the old Levelor Blinds building. Next thing they knew, these older, unemployed women from a small town in northern Mexico were on their way to Vermont to learn the e-waste trade. That meant getting on a plane for the first time in their lives. That meant changing planes at JFK Airport when they don't speak English and, uh, and they'd never you know, had that experience before. That trip to Vermont left a lasting impression, says Doña Loli. La, la gente, las personas, como... The people there, they didn't view us as outsiders. They treated us like equals. There was no age discrimination. There was no racism. It was very different from Mexico. Since then, the economy has taken a dive. But the owner of RetroWorks in Vermont has told the women he'll stick with them. And that wins him their undying allegiance. He says he really cares about us. He says we're his family. I mean, who are we really? But for him, we are somebody. Fully trained, the group began organizing roundups of old electronics across southern Arizona, then trucked the goods here to take apart. People in town started calling them Las Chicas Bravas, the tough girls. This is pure copper. These are motherboards from computer monitors. These are fans from television sets. These contain gold. Vicky Ponce shows how they sort the motherboards and fans and copper wire into barrels. They sell the parts to buyers in Florida, Malaysia, and Egypt. Yet a year and a half after they began taking apart electronics here, the women continue to work in this building without electricity. The mayor has asked the electric company to keep the power off. He seems to have something against them. Probably it's because we haven't made any contributions to him. Or it could be that he hates us because we stood up for ourselves. Getting this business off the ground has been one constant struggle. Throughout the office visits to get numerous licenses and permits, the women have refused to pay any bribes. Many people here agree that refusal has slowed their progress, but they won't budge. Queremos todo limpio. We want everything clean. We want to hold our heads up. We don't want people to say we were involved in anything shady. So that investors who come to Sonora know that we're operating honestly. The women say the adversity has made them stronger. Vicky Ponce remembers her fourth visit to one government office. We had been there for two or three hours. They kept saying he hasn't arrived and he hasn't arrived. Finally, someone came out and said, come back tomorrow. 
And we said we're not coming back because we're not leaving here until you give us that paper. Look at my hands. Do you see long painted fingernails? These are the hands of a working woman. And we need that paper in order to keep working. You are the government and you have to deal with us because you live off our salary. Vicky and the other women say some of that internal fortitude they've developed comes from working closely with Alice Valenzuela, the rancher who's struggled with them every step of the way. Alice, she has another culture. You know Mexican women, we are often raised to put up with hard times and just adapt to our husbands. But she speaks her mind, and she tells us we have worth, no matter who we're talking to. We have rights as citizens, and our politicians should serve us, not serve themselves. The women joke that their bond with Alice is so strong, their fates are cast together. We're like a married couple. We can't be broken up. We have fights, but we stay together. We can't get divorced. Sometimes we say, what a mean husband we got. The perseverance through all the paperwork and the resistance from the mayor is paying off. The little startup is expanding. Recently, they had to rent a bigger warehouse in Douglas, Arizona. This company could go very far, very, very far. Mariano Huchim runs RetroWorks Warehouse and has a computer science degree. When computers and TVs arrive here from curbside pickups, nothing makes him happier than to cherry-pick the good ones and put them back into use. Just because the people in the United States don't want something, that doesn't mean we're going to destroy it. No. We check to see if it's still good for someone else to use. Then we update it and test it to make sure it works perfectly. Mariano says Mexican customers are crossing the border into Arizona to buy these refurbished computers. People are really buying them. We've sold maybe 200 computers and nobody's brought us one back yet. Although RetroWorks is growing, there is one thing that's keeping it from the big time, from contracts with companies that have thousands of old computers. And that's what has Alice and Vicky on the road today. They would love to help us create jobs, and they'd love to give us their electronics. But the glass in computer monitors contains lead, and lead-tainted glass cannot be disposed of in a regular landfill. It has to go to a special EPA-approved landfill or metals plant. Companies don't want to be seen as trying to get around that. They don't want to be accused of sending their waste to a developing country. And, you know, Mexico does not want to be perceived as being the trash dump for the United States. But it turns out there is a giant EPA-approved copper smelter just 20 miles down the road from RetroWorks, Mexico. So today, in a meeting they've been trying to arrange for months, Vicky and Alice are hoping to persuade the smelter to take the glass that's been building up in their warehouse, along with a lot more in the future. It would be transformational because we anticipate not just getting large contracts from big corporations for their electronics, we anticipate... Uh, that other recyclers will pay us to take their glass because they know where it's going to end up. The meeting with the copper company goes well, better than expected. Maybe this will be their breakthrough.
Vicki Ponce says a breakthrough will come sooner or later. She believes in recycling, believes that industry will increasingly mine the industrial ore for its raw materials. And she says she doesn't regret for one minute getting together with this group of women three years ago to see if they could create employment in their town. The economy is for entrepreneurial people, people willing to take risks, people who want to move forward. Otherwise, we'd be sitting around with our arms crossed, earning nothing. For Living on Earth, I'm Ingrid Lobet in Fronteras, Mexico. June is coming, the month for brides and the summer solstice, and National Bathroom Reading Week, which might well be Gordon Javna's favorite week of the year. Javna's better known as Uncle John, editor of Uncle John's Bathroom Readers. They're chock full of trivia, like, well, for example, the fact that we have a week dedicated to bathroom reading. Who knew? Well, his latest is Uncle John's Certified Organic Bathroom Reader, in which Javna plums the depths of environmental issues. Now, Javna says he heard all sorts of conflicting claims about our environment, and he wanted to, well, get to the bottom of things. We found ourselves confused about, as to what is fact and what is fiction, and so we started doing what we always do, and that is we started researching. And by the time we had found the answers to the questions that had set us on this mission, we found we had enough uh, material to write a book. This seems especially rich in uh, puns. For example, you, you got a chapter here on converting human waste into energy, and it's called... Uh, it's called The Power of Poo. Uh-huh. <laughs> Did you find that uh, this content matter that you're dealing with here, the environmental issues, have more opportunity for potty humor than, say, other subjects that you've written about? Short answer to your question is yes. Even on the front page, it says uh, an entertaining look at the green movement. And as I said, we love anything that says movement. Uh, I can't use the word poo in most articles. So. Now, you also have a section here, uh, the human litter box, which is about composting toilets. Yeah. Every American flushes about 20 gallons of water a day. Fresh water. That adds up to hundreds of dollars uh, worth of water a year. And uh, one alternative is a composting toilet. Interestingly, the composting toilet was invented in the 1860s when there was a cholera uh, epidemic in England. And a priest uh, named Henry Moule invented what he called not a water closet, but a dry earth closet, which was basically a wooden box with a bucket... <laughs> underneath, and you pull a lever, and it uh, dispensed a layer of fine dirt or ashes. And composting toilets haven't changed much since then. Well, you know, when you get into covering serious environmental stuff, you run into this problem of it gets pretty darn gloomy. But I think you've done a nice job of countering that with some kind of uh, good examples of people who are trying to find uh, solutions. And I found a great example of that on your section on uh, new forms of renewable energy, this thing called the wind belt. Can you tell me about that one? Yeah, it's the wind belt is an alternative to um, turbines. 
It was invented by a Californian named Sean Frain, a young man who was visiting Haiti in uh, 2004 when he realized that a lot of people didn't have access to power. They were using kerosene lamps to light their homes. And so what he did was he took a piece of taffeta coated in mylar, and he strung it between two trees. And when a wind blows this little strap, the strap goes back and forth and it moves between the copper coils and it creates an electric current that is strong enough to power a light or a radio. Well, you know, one of my favorite bits, at, at the bottom of each page, you have some little trivia tidbit. For example, Chevron has an oil tanker named the Condoleezza Rice. And uh, my, my personal favorite here on page 149 On a 1982 special episode of Different Strokes, acid rain turns Kimberly's hair green. I just love that for some reason. (laughs) How about the fact that at Harvard, Al Gore got a D in natural sciences? You can't make up stuff like this. (laughs) But where do you find all this stuff? The Bathroom Readers Institute is a team of writers and researchers, and we're constantly collecting information, uh, fun facts, interesting facts, things that make you go, hmm, such as... The 1908 Ford Model T got better gas mileage than the 2008 Ford Explorer. How about that? But did you know that Britain's government buildings emit more greenhouse gases than the entire nation of Kenya? Yes, I did know that. (laughs) And did you know that there are more than 9,000 man-made objects floating in space? I did. (laughs) Thanks to your book. So are you like a champion at uh, trivia nights at the pub or what? Nobody lets me play. So sad. It's just as well because if I lose, I'd be in deep, uh, you know. Oh, don't say it. (laughs) Now, another thing your research turned up here, help me out on page 58. Do you mind reading this uh, short letter? This was a letter to the editor, apparently to the uh, Arkansas Democrat from 2007. And it has to do with the um, moving the start time for daylight savings. Yes, and this goes back to, you can't make this stuff up. Here we go. As you know, daylight savings time started a month earlier this year. You'd think that members of Congress would have considered the warming effect that an extra hour of daylight would have on our climate. Or did they? (laughs) The power of Congress to make the sunshine an extra hour. (laughs) Gordon Javna is better known as Uncle John, editor of Uncle John's Bathroom Reader Books, and he is uh, flush with success from publication of his new book, Certified Organic Bathroom Reader, an entertaining look at the green movement. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be with you. On the next Living on Earth, learning to turn hazardous materials into a career. It's a job. It's a dirty job, but it's a job. It has a paycheck attached to it. It also has security attached to it. These jobs cannot be uh, sent off to China. Boot camp for green job hopefuls, next time on Living on Earth. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Bruce Kellerman, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Ike Trishkandaraja, and Mitra Taj, with help from Sarah Calkins and Marilyn Gavoni. Our interns are Lindsay Breslau, Liz Gross, Phil DiMartino, and Christine Parrish. Special thanks today to Fabiola Alcereca, Rosie Amador, and Rosario Hubert. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org.
I'm Jeff Young. And I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, and the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues, the Rockefeller Foundation, and its campaign for American workers. More at rockfound.org. And PaxWorld Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. PaxWorld for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com. PRI Public Radio International.